friends, it's early January, early in the morning, 2024, as I record this latest message for us in the Bible Project Daily Podcast. You're very welcome whether you're here for the first time or you've been here from the very beginning. Today I've called our talk, well it's a familiar phrase used by many, not just those who preach the gospel, but in life in general. Have you heard it? Fail to prepare, prepare to fail. That's what I'd like us to do today, is spend some time in this new chapter, chapter 9, the first nine verses, and see what it can teach us on these matters. So welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast, and if you're a newbie, make sure you hang around at the end, and I'll tell you lots of ways you can connect to this ministry. Bye for now. I wonder if you've ever been frustrated by your lack of influence, Christian influence in the world, your Christian influence upon other people. I know I have on more than one occasion. Well, what I want to do today is look at this commissioning and the sending out into ministry of the apostles and look particularly at what Jesus told them to do and what they should expect. I think by doing this, there are some extremely valuable lessons for us, for all of us, because I think if we can actually take a leaf out of this book and approach these things in the same way as they were told to by Jesus himself, then surely we should expect to see the effectiveness of our own individual ministries increased, but also we should thereby, if we pay attention today, be able to put things into perspective when things don't go as well as we hope. So today we're going to look at the first nine verses of Luke chapter nine, and that's where I'm going to start reading for you. And in my version of the Bible, this little passage section is titled, Jesus Sends Out the Twelve. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them the power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them to take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter into, he said, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Verse 7, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed, because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others said that Elijah had appeared, and still others said that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear I am hearing about such things? And he tried to seek him out. Okay, let's look at beginning to look at the task itself and what we first see is it tells us that Jesus sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So the two primary components of their ministry, their mission, was to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. They were to proclaim the message of this thing called the kingdom of God and demonstrate its reality through the acts of healing 
that people would witness through them. Then if we carry on, we see how Jesus instructs them in the preparation for this mission, or the lack of preparation, you might say, because in verse 3 it says he tells them to take nothing with them for their journey. Not a staff, not a walking stick, not a bag, no food, no money, and they're not even to have a spare shirt. Jesus essentially is telling them to travel light. Take no unnecessary provisions, nothing at all. It seems very clearly that this passage is saying that he wants them to, in doing this, to rely completely on him and his provision. Because they're going out in this mission, friends, and this directive emphasizes that in doing so, they should be totally dependent on God, totally focusing on the task at hand. Now, in the verses that follow, we'll see the outcome of the mission, and it mentions how they depart, and they go through town to town, they preach the gospel, and they're healing people pretty much everywhere they go. And the impact of this mission we shall see is significant. We'll come back to it at the end, but we'll see that the news has in fact reached Herod, Herod the ruler, and Herod's confused because the people are saying that John the Baptist, this guy he, he uh, decapitated, has risen from the dead, the guy had beheaded, and others are saying, no, it's Elijah, and some are saying, no, it's one of these other prophets come back. So this shows that the disciples' activities are garnering, attracting attention in the region. It's generating discussions, not only among the ordinary people, but even at the levels, the highest levels of political leadership. So the outcome of this mission of them beginning this mission has a profound societal impact it's causing discussions speculations about who what is going on and who is behind all this even amongst the highest political re leaders in the region now we can also see that when jesus sent out the disciples how he just bestowed on them authority a remarkable authority power over the natural power it says over demons and diseases and this supernatural power, that's the tool. It's not the thing in of itself. It's not the main mission. Rather, this power that has been bestowed, given to them, the authority to give to them, is served, is given to serve as a way of authenticating and validating the primary task, which is the mission of preaching the kingdom of God. And that's validated through miracles and the healing of the sick. Now, it's also crucial to understand the concept of the kingdom. I know I've been down this path a few times now, and some interpretations do vary, but I hold the view, as do most in the evangelical wing of the church, is that in the Gospels, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom, he is referring to the future coming kingdom. And this, I think, becomes more and more evident as we progress through the Bible and the Gospel stories and even in the teachings that follow. For instance, we have situations where Jesus mentioned things, says things like, they will not be eating the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes, and the disciples to inquire about the kingdom, and there's conversations where it talks about the kingdom after his resurrection coming. So when Jesus sends out the disciples to proclaim, that proclamation he's giving them was to tell the people that the kingdom was near. It wasn't saying that it's established fully now, but that it is at hand, behind the door, so to speak. And of course, that message 
would have been one that was long awaited. The messianic hope was out there, long awaited in Israel. They in fact been anticipating this for centuries. They knew that it was drawing near. And to authenticate the message, the disciples here are given the power of the Holy Spirit to perform miracles, demonstrating supernatural authority over the kingdom of this world, even over diseases itself. And through their action, thereby the message of the kingdom coming is not only proclaimed, but validated by the miraculous powers they wield in the name of Jesus. And this underscores the significance of the proclamation of the fact that the kingdom is in fact near. Bearing in mind, we still have to remember, its ultimate fulfillment will in fact be a future event. Now, considering all that, let's focus at the task in hand. The disciples, they're commissioned to go and preach the kingdom. In fact, one commentator I read, I feel rightly notes, that in those times, this, of course, is the only way that it could be done. It goes without saying, of course, there's no books, no public libraries, no televisions, certainly no radio or internet. So the primary, one would say, the only method of spreading the gospel was there through, through direct communication, person to person, one to one, one to groups of people, what we would today, some might call gossiping the gospel. So the disciples are essentially tasked with sharing the good news and doing it by going out into the world and engaging in conversations with people. Now, shifting our attention to the next part of the message, preparation, let's pause for a moment and reflect on what this might mean. Imagine you're a person capable of performing miracles like casting out demons or instantly healing diseases. Obviously, such a person, such events would undoubtedly be seen as absolutely extraordinary by anyone who came into contact with such things. Jesus, by giving his disciples the power, the power to perform these types of miracles, demonstrates that he, as the bestower of such power, is no ordinary human being. He is, in fact, the Son of God, able not only, here's the important thing, able not only to work miracles in himself, but also to empower others to do the same. Now, if we try and connect this to our present reality, see if there's a place in this passage where we can identify with these disciples. It says that Jesus also sends us out, and he sends us out with power. A familiar term is used several times in the New Testament. As a very familiar verse says to us, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. So Jesus has instructed us, you and I today, to go out and share the same message, promising us this power of the Holy Spirit in doing that. Now, we need to remember that we ourselves do not have that power that is of our own to perform miracles of healing or these things like casting out demons in his own name, but only through the name and the power of the Holy Spirit. And what that might look at today, I'll discuss in more detail in a future episode in a week or so. However, there is uh, what I'm just asking you to hold on to at this point is there is absolutely, definitely, undoubtedly a supernatural aspect to the power we receive. As nobody, well, even from the point of salvation, nobody comes to Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives.
But anyway, let's look at their actual practical preparation for this mission. We see in these early verses 3 to 5, Jesus provides them with specific instructions on what they should and should not carry with them on their journey. And essentially, he tells them not to rely on anything else, nothing of their own resources, not even practical things. Imagine if you just had to go on some sort of mission or uh, just do something, plan your day and travel a few miles down the road and go maybe to another town or city and stay overnight what's the first thing you would likely do today you'd most likely go back home and begin a little bit of preparation wouldn't you however jesus here instructs his disciples to leave immediately and he says go now and leave without any belongings of your own in other words they're to leave the town and go about this work with only the clothes that they're wearing on their backs Now the significance of not taking any provision with them becomes clear because Jesus is emphasizing that they should have a complete dependence of the hospitality of the people, the various townspeople they're going to come into contact with and that will give them insight into how receptive they are to the gospel. So also when they reach their destination, it says just stay with the first person who invites them to stay with them. They're not to move around seeking better accommodation. And of course, this I think would ensure stability in their interactions with the community. He doesn't want them to cause a distraction by switching accommodation from place to place because there's always a danger that they could face currying favour either from people or people trying to curry favour with them. Furthermore, it says, if you go into a town and in that town that you encounter a refusal, they refuse to receive them or the message that they're bringing with them, Jesus just says, well, in that case, move on. And he advises a symbolic action of shaking off the dust from their feet. Now, that might seem a bit odd to us in our way of thinking, but it carried a very straightforward yet profound message to these disciples coming out of a Jewish tradition. You see, when a Jew left the land of Israel, the Holy Land, and they entered or travelled through Gentile territory, upon returning it was customary to symbolically shake the dust from their feet, symbolising a rejection of the idolatries of that Gentile area. So Jesus is, in a sense, repurposing this action, this directive, instructing the disciples, yes, to perform it, but on this occasion to perform it if they encounter rejection from within their own Jewish community. It signifies a clear line in the sand and a dissociation with those who refuse to accept the message and moving on to proclaim it elsewhere. One other further possible interpretation of all this The fact that Jesus wanted them to travel light, of course, means that that would facilitate swift, unencumbered movement. But the deeper implication lies in them just as missionaries, as disciples, being able to sort of instill in them a profound trust in the Lord and trusting in nothing else. By refraining them from taking even provisions, the disciples are wholly encouraged to place their trust completely in God's provision. And this aligns with the principle found in the next chapter, where it will tell us that a worker is worthy of his hire, suggesting that as they engage in the Lord's work, one of the evidence 
of a community of people accepting the message is that they will ensure that those who are engaging in the work of the Lord, it will ensure, he will ensure, they should ensure that their needs are met. Yet the most intriguing aspect of this preparation discussed in these verses is where Jesus also, very importantly as part of the preparation, forewarns the disciples about their forecoming rejections that they will face. Unlike conventional evangelism today, which seems to me to focus perhaps a little bit too much on the methods and also maybe even goes as far as just getting people to learn some sort of script and trust in some sort of process or system, Jesus is saying just trust in the Lord and the power of the message itself but be aware that people will reject it. So the Lord is explicitly warning them right from the beginning, right as part of their preparation, that their message, his message, will be rejected by some people. And giving this upfront acknowledgement, if you like, of this rejection stands out as, well, really quite an unconventional aspect of their preparation compared to how most people seem to me, in my estimation anyway, are trained today. It's as if Jesus is preparing them by saying, look guys, there are going to be inevitable inevitable challenges to what you're saying. You're going to face these in their mission. In fact, they're evidence that you're on the right track, thereby ensuring that they're not disheartened by setbacks that they might face. Perhaps today there would be real merit in candidly informing every individual, every Christian right from the beginning about the fact that they will undoubtedly face rejection up front, recognizing that you will encounter a resistance and that in fact is normal to be expected is in fact an integral part of the journey of faith. And by doing so, I think we would go a great way to alleviating the discouragement that affects so many people. For anyone who is about to embark on sharing the gospel or even just living the Christian life following salvation, I think early on we should be helping people understand that they're not only going to face resistance, but sometimes even out-and-out rejection. Reminding people that the rejection of the message is not a reflection of failure in any way. It's just the reality of the shared experience of living the journey of faith of living the true Christian life. So in contemplating the rejection that's often accompanied by the sharing of the gospel, it's crucial to recognize the fundamental truth that this rejection, as Jesus tells them here, is ultimately directed at the message. It's directed at him, not the messenger. So we can be encouraged in that. Jesus here is commissioning these first 12 guys and he's providing a profound lesson by part of, of it saying, look, you're going to face rejection. And the key principle here is that failure is an event. It is not part of your identity in whatever life area of life it applies. Understanding this is pivotal to every believer every person in every aspect of their life, particularly because those of us who share the gospel will find that there are people out there who not only reject the, the gospel, but they reject the individual conveying it. And it's essential, essential friends, not to take rejection of our Christian faith personally. 
The rejection is not a measure of your worth. It's not even a measure of your effectiveness. As I say, failure is an event, not a person. In essence, they may dislike the message, but that must never reflect on you as an individual. Ultimately, we can draw inspiration from many biblical accounts, the high point of which would be the stoning of Stephen. That serves as a reminder. Stephen was someone who boldly proclaimed the truth, and he faced hostility even to the point of being stoned to death. And this principle echoes the reality that standing for the truth may, for us, provoke resistance yet it should not be a reason to be discouraged excuse me or disheartened so in living this christian life in navigating the challenges of rejection it's crucial absolutely crucial friends to maintain this perspective rejection should not paralyze you in any way it should not stop you going forward it should not even impede your journey and this analogy of simply shaking the dust off your feet a symbolic act used by Jesus here reinforces the idea of moving forward. And when we today face this type of rejection, when it occurs to us, we should simply shake the dust from our feet metaphorically and move on to and put our efforts into the next opportunity. And in this case, it would have been the next time. Understanding the role of rejection in the broader context of our long-range goals as Christian believers, if I can put it that way, we can understand that, you know what, our goal is not measured in any short-term success of ticking boxes or counting numbers in the day-to-day, but instead is an enduring commitment to pleasing the Lord and living a life obedient to his word. Because our long-range goal, if you'll forgive me putting it that way, is simply to stand before him one day and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And knowing that is the end game, that should provide us with the resilience in any short-term setbacks that you or I might face. In other words, thereby rejection in itself can become simply a stepping stone to the next place. It is not an insurmountable object. It is simply a step along the way in the pursuit of this higher purpose we're aiming for. There was a famous inventor named Charles Kettering, and he suggested what he called we need to all learn to feel intelligently. That's an interesting turn of phrases. Let me quote the full thing for you. Feel intelligently, he said, because once you fail to analyze the problem and find out why you failed, Each failure is one more step towards leading you to the cathedral of success. The only time you don't want to fail is the last time you try. Think about that principle, friends. Here is what we need to understand. We need to just honestly face defeat. On the other side of that coin, of course, some people respond to failure by trying to fake success. We're not to do that either, not only in the world, but not in the things of the Spirit. Life in general, no. Christian faith, neither. It's it's sensible, of course, to explore failure and then to exploit it to enable us not to waste future opportunities that appear in a similar way. Every bitter experience we have, not only in our Christian life, but life in general, can teach us something and enable us to do something better. 
And the ultimate point to make is failure. We must never use failure or a reason for not trying again. So here's a reality check. When you embark on the journey of life, when you embark on the Christian journey of life, sharing your faith, then brace yourself for rejection. That's what Jesus says. And if you counter it, because you will, because if you're authentically preaching the gospel, telling people about the board, then, Lord, then be assured, friends, it will happen. But here we see Jesus in his wisdom right at the beginning, commissioning these 12 disciples, equipping them for, to, for what lay ahead, physically, spiritually, psychologically. And part of that preparation was to him. You might say the two main parts were dependence on him and a stark acknowledgement that there will be individuals who reject absolutely the message they're trying to carry. So the disciples here are set out on their mission, traveling across towns and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to come. And the brilliance of Jesus's strategy becomes evidence here because by sending out the disciples together, the reach of the message will be seen to expand exponentially. That's just the practical effect of the way in which he's done it. They're sent out two by two. They venture into towns, healing and preaching. And at this point, once this process begins, then an interesting twist occurs. These are two verses at the end we hear about what happens when the powers that be hear about what's going on. Herod the Tetrarch, this guy catches wind of what's going on. I'll just remind us of what it says. Verse 7 to 9. Herod the Tetrarch heard about what was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead and others that Elijah had appeared and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. So who then is this I hear about such things? And he tried to seek him out. So picture this. The local nearby government leader becomes aware that the gospel is being proclaimed in a nearby territory. Now, in a typical scenario, you might imagine, well, wow, some excitement here, a positive reception. However, in this case, Herod's response is not one of affirmation, rather it's rejection of the message. Now, let's just add some historical context. Let me be clear, this is not Herod, the one associated with the horrific events of the slaughter of the innocents, the slaughter of children during the birth of Christ. It's a different Herod, a, dis a relative, yes. This is Herod the Tetrarch, who is currently in a position of governance in that region. So consider this scenario. What's going on here is the gospel's being shared. People nearby are being healed as a response to witnessing those healings, are being motivated to help others by doing things like supporting other people, supporting the poor, looking after widows and or orphans. All of that's going on, and in a nearby state, the news of these efforts reach the governor. One would imagine that there might be a positive reception, a sense of accomplishment, something worth embracing, I hear, but Herod's reaction serves as a reminder that often even in positions of authority, the gospel can and will face rejection. This is a striking illustration of how the message, it will not be universally ablaze. Sometimes, even when reaching the highest echelons of society and leadership, even when witnessing the positive effects of it, some people will reject it. Herod's rejection to the news of Jesus and his disciples is one of bafflement. 
Instead of being intrigued or desired to hear more of the message, Herod is confused and the cause of this bafflement and confusion is revealed to us in verse 9. The word is out, it's on the street, and some are suggesting that John the Baptist has been risen from the dead. Now, that would have been very unsettling news for Herod, as he was the one responsible for the execution of John for the most muddled of motives. Imagine the scene, Herod here sitting comfortably in his palace, and he learns about this guy Jesus, and the fact is his disciples are preaching his message, and there's rumours among the people circulating that this is the resurrection of the very guy that Herod had executed. Or others are saying, no, no, this is the arrival of Elijah as a precursor of the Messiah to come, one who will sweep away the old powers and set up new. So naturally, well, <laughs> this stare stirs up Herod's curiosity, but more than that, his paranoid fears. There's an underlying concern here, especially with this notion and this idea that John might have returned from the dead, because of course if John had been raised by God from the dead, what does that say of his decision to kill him? So verse 9 unveils for us Herod's response. And it's interesting here, he acknowledges having beheaded John the Baptist, and he's still a bit confused and interested in who this new preacher is, new preacher is and what's going on but in an unexpected twist Herod doesn't dismiss the news it says he seeks to hear the message for himself now that may on the surface appear positive but we need to ask what's his motivation why does he do it well what we can say is this is definitely not a spiritual hunger or a, a desire for salvation or a hunger to seek righteousness Harris' motive sadly is very clear. He simply wants to verify if this preacher is in fact John the Baptist, the guy he had executed, potentially returned from the dead. In the broader context of the passage, this episode serves as an illustration for us also that not everybody approaches the gospel message with good or pure intentions. Herod's interest is rooted not in a desire for repentance, not in any way seeking salvation. Rather, it is wholly driven by his personal agenda to identify what he probably saw as some rogue preacher. And I think this subtly underscores for us the various reasons that people will, on the surface, engage with the message of Christ, some of which will often not align with a genuine pursuit of faith but instead it's about them pursuing their own selfish interests. And we need to know that political leaders have done this for hundreds, no thousands of years. People in power will often exploit the gospel to achieve their own political ends. So in summary, friends, what can I say about this passage? Well, it underscores the inevitability of the rejection that people will face anyone who's proclaiming the message of Jesus and his kingdom. Just as Jesus prepared the apostles for potential rejection, modern-day believers like you and I, we need to anticipate and understand that not everyone will accept this message. Understanding this reality can give us a real inner strength, a sense of resilience, and can prevent us becoming discouraged when we don't see things happening as we hoped. Rejection is not going is not a unique experience of the modern Christian believer today. Because here, 
even Jesus himself and his very first apostles, they faced it. The key is to persevere through setbacks and not let setbacks, not allow them to become a reason or an excuse to quit. Embracing the expectation of rejection can in fact empower us to navigate the challenges and continue sharing the message of Christ despite the, the opposition we might encounter. Mary Pickford, that actress from a century ago, said if you make mistakes there's always another chance to make a fresh start. You see friends, failure is not falling down. Failure is staying down and not getting up again. A sentiment we see repeatedly referred to in films like the Rocky films, Thus Spoke the Prophet Balboa. So here's my point friends, our job is simply to stay in the game. No matter what the score is, stay in the match. Just stay, don't quit, and understand that the sort of interim failures we will face along the way in the day-to-day, -day, that is going to happen to the majority of the people who live the Christian life authentically and share it with others. If Israel reject Jesus, if Israel reject Jesus when the Son of God himself was working amongst them, working miracles amongst them, then why would we think things might be any different for us? Our job, friends, is just to remain true to the Lord we love and to stay in the game. Stay in the game no matter what, no matter what the score is, because our reward comes when we stand before the Lord. Not necessarily in the day-to-day, but we only gain that reward in the end if we run the race to the end, if we stay to the end of the day. And throughout this, each and every day, we should always remain thankful, thankful friends, that God has even give us, given us the opportunity to play our part and share this glorious good news of the gospel of his Son and the forgiveness of sins. God has given us the opportunity and he will also, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give us the words to say what we need to do and the Spirit of God to apply it and to apply it into the hearts of people when we are faithfully doing it. And with God's help, thereby and by the power of his spirits, we can not only see his power at work in the lives of other people, but by that same spirit, we can be kept free of discouragement and frustration when people don't appear to respond. So with that, we can be truly thankful. And I do hope you find that helpful as you live your Christian life in the day to day and try as best you can to authentically represent him and the good news of his gospel to other people. I'll leave it there today. Thank you for being with me. Okay, that's it friends all the stuff's in the usual places there's an episode notes page and a full transcript of this message available if not if you're not seeing it on your where you're getting your podcast from you can see it at the bible project at buzzsprout.com where the podcast's hosted
I'm so glad you've been with me today and you've decided to be part of this journey to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. And can I just say thank you to everyone who's doing anything to help tell other people about this journey we're doing together, whether you've shared it or you've just told someone about it. By doing that, you've helped keep this going and given more people the opportunity to make the study of God's Word part of their daily life. So thank you for that. And if you've got a moment, why not take a look around us on the YouTube? Well, the best place to go is the Bible Project at buzzsprout.com because there's links there to the other places that exist online, like the socials, the YouTube channel, LinkedIn. There's even a place like Patreon where you can support and partner with this ministry if you like and reach out to me personally. So thank you again for joining with me today. It's been wonderful. I do trust I'll see you back here tomorrow and we'll pick up in Luke chapter 9, verse 10, exactly where we left off today. And with that said, I'll say bye-bye for now.